Welcome to Off Leash Arts, Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. My guest today is someone very special to me, writer and writing teacher Lori Wagner. Lori has been publishing books and essays and teaching writing for the last 25 years. She's a process guru and has a genius for holding space, helping people to unzip what's inside them and get ink on the page. Her wild writing classes are the cornerstone of her work. She teaches online and takes people around the world to places like Kathmandu, San Miguel de Allende, and Oaxaca in Mexico, and Taos, New Mexico. She is the author of the books Living Happily Ever After, Couples Talk About Lasting Love, and Expectations, 30 Women Talk About Becoming a Mother. The documentary film she was a writer for, called For Better or For Worse, was nominated for an Academy Award in 1996. She's written for Glamour, Salon, Brain, Child, and the San Francisco Chronicle. I was a participant in Lori's wild writing courses, and I also took her wild writing teacher training. Lori's training and example provided the foundation for the way I teach my own writing workshops, which I call off-leash writing. It's a great pleasure to welcome Lori to the podcast. Lori Wagner, welcome to Off-Leash Arts. It is my pleasure, Tanya. Thank you. So happy to be here. I'd like to start by asking if you'd give us kind of a an overview of your career journey so far. So where <laughs> where did you start and what was the trajectory from there to here? I was always one of those super creative kids. I drew, I made comics, I was in little bands. And so I always uh, imagined that my life would be one of arts. But I also didn't know what that really looked like and also didn't necessarily have the courage to pursue a lot of things. So some of the things I began with have become just things I love. Like I didn't become a musician, but I adore music. I didn't become a visual artist per se, but I, I make things with my hands. So it's it's been a life with a lot of that. But I will say some pivotal things. I did go to journalism school. I did go to art school. And so that's a lot of that storytelling and that's visuals. When I got out of college in journalism, I started to get work in journalism as an artist. So I was bringing together my love of art and talking to people, talking to artists and being in studios with the journalism background. So sharing stories. And so I started doing art journalism that was here in the Bay Area in the early 80s. I got here in 82 and I was 22. So I was doing journalism as well as working at bookstores. Mm. And I have to say, like working at bookstores is such a wonderful place to be in your 20s because you're you're getting so much material. You're putting your hands on so many books. You're turning on to new genres. And I think the combination of going to art school, working in the bookstore was just the right kind of Petri dish for somebody like me who didn't quite know what my 30s would look like, but was definitely filling up on books and art and that kind of a thing. And then a really important thing happened to me when I was about, I think, 28, 29, and I summed up all my talents as a singer, musician, writer, artist. And to tell you the truth, I didn't feel like I was talented enough in any of those things to make it in the market. So I did a really severe thing, which is I put all that to the side and I went to work for the man at Simon & Schuster and I became a traveling sales rep. 
And the thing about that was, I should be careful, but at the time, anyway, Simon is a big publisher and um, they were doing a lot of books and not all of them were great, as you can imagine. So I'm getting my hands on all these books that are just not great. And I'm going, wow, interesting, Lori, you really kind of, you know, you hung yourself to dry in a way. You basically said, you're not going to make it. So you got to put all that stuff away. And I'm looking at all this stuff. It's like, and I really realized this was an important juncture for me. I realized that I couldn't hold the market up as the standard for my own expression in the world. Like if it wasn't going to be good enough for the market, then I was going to cut myself off. No, I didn't think so. And I realized I was on a trip with my husband and I just was really clear that I was going to get sick if I continued in sales and didn't just express myself. And so I just took the risk. I left Simon after three and a half years, learned a ton, loved it in a lot of ways, but left. And within a month, I got my first book deal from Chronicle Books. It was like, you know, I don't like to say like the universe, but it was like the universe were like going, good, good move. Okay, now you're back with us. What? Here's something for you to sink your teeth into. So, you know, for a bunch of years, I wrote books for Chronicle Books and I really enjoyed myself. And they're photography essay books. One's about long-term marriage. Another is about motherhood. I was really proud of those and I love them very much. And another turning point was that I had two little kids and my husband was an artist. And so it was difficult to have a life where you are, and you know this very well, hoping that the money that comes in, comes in because of your good idea that you're going to sell. You have to have an idea, then you have to sell it. And then maybe if you're lucky, you get some dollars for it. But that was a really hard way to go with two kids and an artist husband. So I being the like practical Torian that I am, I kind of just moved toward teaching. And I taught for a long time at writers.com, which is a teaching website, writing website. And I taught there for I think eight and a half or nine years, just making stuff up a lot of nonfiction. I'm super from the street. I'm not, you know, the MFA grammar. No, I've always been like super guttural. And around that time, I started doing something that was like wild writing, which is what I teach now. So about 30 years ago, I got turned on to this style of writing that has become really the foundation for my work. I was taking classes with a woman in Berkeley, Cecile Muchnek, who was teaching this style of quick writing, timed writing, that kind of thing, really from Natalie Goldberg. She had gotten it from Natalie. And anyway, so I started doing a lot of that writing about 30 years ago and working as a teacher. There were a lot of other things that happened during that time. We worked on a couple of documentary films. One was called For Better, For Worse. That got nominated for an Academy Award. All this kind of stuff here and there, magazine articles, books, working in bookstores. I didn't intend to become a teacher. I thought it was all going to be about my work, but it turned out I was really good at teaching. I remember my boss from writers.com, Mark Dalby said, Lori, you just got to love them. You just got to love them. And I realized that I was good at that. And so I grew my teaching and teaching. And then I'm not sure, Tanya, at what point wild writing, which is like, again, the heartbeat of what I do, became my full-time work over 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so wild writing has now become like the universe that I swim in. And that's a very sort of 
modeled trajectory I just gave you. I guess the couple important parts of that, it was just constantly creativity, but also with a kind of flat-footed, keep going, put myself out, teach, create classes. Um, And now we travel, you know, now we take this work all around the world and I do it here and it's, you know, did it make sense to you? Yeah, it made sense. And I especially noted those key turning points, that moment where you're working for a publisher and have this realization, oh, the market isn't (laughs) who gets to judge whether or not I do my art. And that feels like a really important moment. Really, really important moment. That was so important. And then there was one more important moment where, you know, you're out on the internet and there's so many people out there and there's so many people teaching. And I was teaching lots of different things, even on my own website. And then I realized that this wild writing practice that I do that I know we'll get to talk about is really the heartbeat of everything. And so this was kind of important because I was teaching so much, but I brought everything down to the nucleus of wild writing. So whether I was offering a trip or offering a product or a class, it was all in the family of wild writing. And I think that really focused me and focused Mm. my work. Yeah. So how would you describe wild writing for our listeners if they don't know what it is? Okay. So wild writing is a timed writing practice. I didn't discover this myself. Lots of people have done it in many iterations. Natalie Goldberg, Writing Down the Bones, and Julia Cameron's Artist Pages. And before that, lots of people have done it. And so basically it's timed writing. You write as fast as you can, pen never leaving the page. I do it for about 15 minutes at a time. And the reason we're writing so quickly is we're trying to bypass our cleverness and our intelligence and everything else we sort of shove in the front room so that we look good or people will think we're smart or we'll be well-received. We're writing too fast to do that. We're writing past the part of us that wants to assemble it. We're writing past the part of it that also is judging it like, oh, no, not that. And that's shit. And we're writing too fast for all of that. And instead, all we can hear is the word that's coming and the word after that and the sentence that's coming. And for me, that's the creative unconscious. That's the instinct and the intuition. And so in wild writing, when we practice writing so quickly, we're also practicing strengthening a muscle for the creative unconscious. And that's why it's a practice. And we're really, really relaxing. It's a relaxation practice. Even though we're writing really quickly, it's a way for us to get a lot of words on the page and to stumble, if we're lucky, into a kind of vulnerability and authenticity that makes for very beautiful writing. Mm, Yeah. You should know because you teach it. I do, <laughs> you <teach it. laughs> but I wanted them to hear it in your words. <laughs> you use poetry for the prompts. What is it about poetry that you feel lends itself to inspiring people's yeah. honest, open writing? Well, for starters, this is how I was taught. I was taught through poetry. When I took that class over 30 years ago with Cecile Muchnek in Berkeley, she used poetry. And even though the poets she used at the time aren't poets I still use, here's why I love poetry. Number one, it's short. And so it's kind of like this golden love bomb of just creative goodness that you just Mm -hmm. lob at people. So it's short. Poets have an economy of language. And so they're often using words that have a lot of mileage to them. Each word is very intentional. And so when you get the poem, it hits you and goes in deep. 
and fast. It's like an immediate kind of thing. And so we're using storytelling poetry, narrative poetry, poetry that has the ability to move us into a kind of dreamy world where we're now stepping into something really different and something that is sort of spins us around. And then we're asked a question maybe like, and so what about you? You know, the poem asks us, good poems do that. They ask us, what about you? And what do you think? And so the poem is a way for us to take the material that's already inside of us and marry it with the goodness and the juiciness of the poem to sort of spit us out in a new place. Mm, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's a microdosing. Poems are microdosed bits of beauty. Yes. And poetry teaches us things. It's so not just in service of beauty. The poetry I love is always reminding us, it's always saying like, this and that. It's the world of tension. It's the world of, you know, Dina Metzger asked me a long time ago. She's a very beloved writing teacher in Topanga, who's I think going to be 87 this month. And Dina said, what do you write about? And I said, oh, I think I write about beauty, but it's not always pretty. And she said, beauty rarely is. And so poetry can really give us the tension in the bittersweet life that we all live. Poetry can do that. Yes. I listened to your recent interview with Rosemary Watola Traumer about that, about paradox, about poetry's ability to hold both things. Like we're not arguing a point, we're holding it all. I love that so much because we're not, you know, skipping our way toward a Hallmark card. That's not helpful. Look at the world we live in is so full of so much that's inside of us. You read the news and it's like gulp horrible, sad, and yet it's beautiful outside. And how do we create an environment? And that's what I really hope to do in all the work that I'm sharing with people and inspiring myself and others to write is like, how can we hold the whole thing and move along as citizens? You've talked a lot about how important it is for people to name things precisely as they are, even and especially when it's uncomfortable to do so. Why is that important? I think it's a way of acknowledging, just naming things as they are, acknowledging. So let me give you, I'm just going to guess on a sentence. Here's a sentence. I feel bad. Okay. Here's a different sentence. I am lonely. Here's another sentence. You know, when I get into bed at night, I'm aware of a kind of loneliness. That's naming things. That's actually naming things precisely. It's not just, I've been feeling off. I've been feeling bad. It's like the courage to actually go straight there. And what happens when, for instance, if I use a word like lonely, is that now I've really let you in to a much more intimate experience that I'm sharing with you. And I'm willing for you to see it. I'm willing to name it. So I have to take all judgment away from it all my own judgment away from it, name it as it is, which to you, the reader is an invitation because you know what that feels like. So there's that naming it. That's why the specifics are important because I think it creates an intimacy between reader and writer an intimacy between writer and writer. You know, when you write something like that, you're like, yeah, that's true. But also I think that to be able to name things, that doesn't mean we have to write deeply about them, but just name things. 
as they are, it's a kind of acknowledgement and accounting for what is true, what is right there, as opposed to avoiding things. You know, I'm really all about when I was younger, people used to say about me, like, she really goes for the guttural, which always sounded very angry. But what I'm really trying to do, and I don't really get those comments anymore, but I am trying to tell the truth. I am trying to expose myself in my work where I can as a way to connect to the reader and as a way to get away from the part of me that wants to have something be clever or presentational. Yeah, there's that element. Another thing that we talked about a lot in the teacher training, that element of risk, that element of courage. Mm -hmm. What is it that people are risking when they open themselves and what do they gain from that? Right. They're risking being misunderstood. They're risking being projected on. They're risking being kicked out of the tribe because they've said something that people don't like to talk about. What do they gain? Oh, my God. You know, when you really say something true before you even share it, saying it true to yourself is like your soul just going, thank you. Thank you for naming what is true. Thank you for having the courage to name what is true. And then when you share it, it's like in the teacher training, we always talk about like sacrificing your own facade so that you can model for people what is possible. And so, you know, you're really good at that. And as a writer and as a teacher, you're really good at that. And you will reveal yourself in an effort to say to people, hey, the water's just fine. Yeah, we can talk about aging. Yeah, we can talk about loneliness. Yeah, we can talk about our bodies. We can talk about, you know, the sorrows of the losses, like whatever. And, you know, that's not the kind of conversation that people know how to have. But in wild writing, that's what we traffic in. That's exactly what we traffic in. And so that becomes the way we relate to one another and the way we relate to the page and the way we relate to ourselves. Mm, yeah. So is that part of what you mean when you say it's a transformational practice, that it's it's transforming like our relationship to the truth, our relationship to ourselves? Totally. And 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 it's like this, it's and I've experienced it for myself after, you know, 30 plus years of doing this work, is that you can't tell the truth on the page for very long if there's a gap between what you're writing and what you're living. And that gap will get smaller because you can't keep saying one thing on the page and then be living it totally differently. It catches up with you. And I shouldn't say this, but a number of people have left marriages. Uh, maybe that was going to happen anyway. You know, what is it? 50% of this United States is people <laughs> who leave their marriages. But I've seen it in the classes. And I have to think that the wild writing gets people in touch with what is true for them. And then if you continue to live and ignore that, that's when you get, that's when you suffer, you know? Mm. So the risk of living, listening to your instinct and your intuition, the risk of saying, I hear you, I hear you. And that might mean some things have to go to the wayside too. Some things are lost. The wild writing community has grown really large in the last few years. And I'm wondering if you think there's something about this particular post-pandemic moment that makes people especially long for the opening that this is offering? Or mm -hmm. what is it, do you think, that is speaking to people right now that they're like, yes, I want to do this? Mm. I can only speak for myself 
as a 62 year old, am I 62 or 63? Seriously, I just forgot. I think that there's a sense and you don't have to be 60 something. You can be 40 something or 50 something to go, holy moly, there isn't that much time. I don't have time to get it right. I I'm still waiting for someone to give me permission to write permission to write a story or to write poetry. If I'm still waiting for that permission, like it hurts inside. And I think one thing we saw in the pandemic was that things could so easily slip away, so easily slip away. And all this sort of, I noticed for myself, like the big, like doctors, scientists, politicians, even if I'd had an unconscious way of depending on these people, uh, publishers, music publishers, like everything was just collapsing. And there was all that you saw so many people doing that DIY, like they were putting their work out on Substack. Everyone was just like, oh, screw finding a publisher. Here's my book. Oh, screw finding a music publisher. I'm going on Instagram with my music. And so there was this, this sort of delirium of permission of expression because all these big houses that we'd waited for permission for all this were just tumbling. And so there's that. I think a lot of people were alone and they were looking for connection and that kind of thing. And so at the beginning of the pandemic, I'd never been able to scale my work and I didn't need to or want to. I was running small classes. I was traveling. That was nice sized for me. But at the pandemic, I realized that we were in a new situation that we'd need to write down, that we really needed to pay attention and take notes here because we were all new to it. And so I put out a 27-day free video series, one video a day, and people would just write. And like, I don't know, 1,500 people signed up for a free 27-day class. And as they were working on it, as people were doing it, I realized, that if they loved it, I had nothing for them except these tiny little classes for women. And so we created a membership. And so now it's a large community of people all over the world who are doing this practice together. And it's a way that they connect with themselves through the writing. And then it's a way that they connect with the community through sharing writing and Mm -hmm. and vulnerable, honest writing. So I think it's fairly healing. Yeah. You describe the teacher training as leadership training. Yeah. And what are the particular qualities of leadership that you think help people to help others really open themselves up? Right. I mean, the first thing that comes up to me is I think the most important thing for people who want to lead this work is, again, to sacrifice their facade and to let go of whatever they thought a leader looked like. A person who, you know, while other people are writing, they're not writing. You know, no, we are doing a naked leadership here. This is naked leadership training. And so you come out as a teacher on the page with transparency and openness and also an ability, a willingness to not write well and to read it anyway. And so whatever sort of old ideas we had about what a leader looks like, really letting all of those go. And showing up instead with the kind of vulnerability, transparency, openness to lead the work from that place. Also to create a safe environment for people, because this is not how we relate out there in the world. So how can we, in a a very short amount of time, create a safe environment where eight women at a table feel safe enough 
to actually tell the truth on the page. And so when somebody does that in a class, for instance, they become like, that's a leadership quality. And people get to see like, oh, look what Susan wrote. And I now I have the courage to write that too. And so, you know, we have, we have a, a set of conditions too, where everything stays at the table and we're not referencing each other's work. This is really important in this work is that we're not commenting on the work. We're not critiquing the work. We're just holding space and witnessing. And for a long time, you know, I asked myself, is that enough? Is it enough just to hold space for people to do their deep work? And it is. It is enough. What a break to not have to come up with an answer or a solution for somebody, not to fix somebody. The container holds the whole thing. Why do you feel it's important that there be no commentary? And we even say in the circles of women and occasionally a few brave men, um, <laughs> if someone is crying, we're not going to touch them. You know, we're going to allow them. Why do you feel that's important to this practice? Because I think anybody who's crying is really lucky. They're like, oh, they're having like they're getting they're getting wet inside. Things are moving inside. What was down there and sort of cramped down is coming up. How lucky are they? And that's just beautiful. And I think that sometimes out of our out of our hearts, we want to comfort people. And so, you know, we touch them or something. We're actually distracting their practice, their process. And I think the desire to touch, even though it comes from a nice place, is actually more about us and less about them. Somehow maybe we're uncomfortable with people having emotion. And so we reach out to try to sort of shore that up. But what I think happens is that then that person gets pulled out of wherever they are. Now they're seeing you and dealing with you. And so a lot of, you know, in the training and even at the table, we talk about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, getting comfortable with somebody crying and just being with it, just holding space with it, getting comfortable with difficult writing with people who are writing really painful things. There are lots of lots of stories out there. and to not feel like it's your job to fix anything and to trust that that person is going to be okay. Because ahead of time, we always say to people, it's okay to cry. And if you cry, just know that we're going to just take a big breath. We're going to give you some space and then we're going to keep going. We're going to move on to the next person. And to some people that might seem cold, but actually I think what it does is it lets that person know that no, we're not going to all come running to them. No, they don't have to take care of us. They get to do their piece. They're going to take a breath and we're going to move on. And I think it, it gives them the freedom to do that without feeling like, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take the class down or everyone's going to. The other reason that we don't chit chat about each other's work is that I want the space to be so safe that I can write about a really tough thing, for instance, or I can write about anything. And then someone isn't going to come to me later and go, hey, Lori, I can't believe you've da 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 Can you tell me more about that? I don't want to turn what gets written in the class in this environment into a sort of chat. Mm, yeah. I often quote you in my classes, and I remember you saying, tears bless the classroom. And I've quoted that to people a lot of times, because they yeah. have a tendency to say, I'm sorry, oh, I'm sorry, and try to stop themselves. And I'm like, no, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for showing yeah. us that we can, we can cry. 
I envy those people. I'm not a person who cries easily. Whenever someone starts crying, I'm like, oh, here it comes. You know, pray that pray that it will touch us, that yeah. the depth of this person's whatever is up for them, pray that we can all catch a whiff of that and that it can move something in us too. Yeah, you know? seriously. Yeah. We're talking about what we're talking about are small classes. We're talking about being at a table, which you do with people and having this very intentional hour and a half or two hours where the name of the game is to try to name things as they are, to try to tell the truth, to try to say yes to what's coming and not block what's coming, but to say yes to it. I hear you. Here it comes. Here it comes. It's a kind of channeling. And what I find is that the work is so beautiful and the practice is really helpful. Even if I'm writing a blog post or an essay or anything like that, I'm always going to be using the wild writing, the messiness of the wild writing to get me started because I really want to, I want to stumble forward. I always, I think I talked about it in the teacher training. I loved thinking about Alice in Wonderland. The reason she made it to the Mad Hatter's Tea Party is because she was, you know, hoofing it through the forest. She was running through the forest. She tripped, fell in the hole and landed at the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. So we always say, like, pray that you will stumble, pray that you will stumble, pray that you will unleash yourself from the way you think you need to tell the story or the way you need to present yourself out in the world and pray that you get lost. Pray that you can untether yourself from that. And the other the other image too is, you know, when you're driving and you have a destination, but you accidentally take a wrong turn, you take a left where you should have taken a right, but you took a left and now you're in an entirely new neighborhood that you wouldn't have seen before. And the new neighborhood is the wrong word, the wrong thing to say, the thing you're certain you should never say, like suddenly you're in a new neighborhood and now you have the opportunity to express yourself or tell a story in a whole new way versus keeping things nice and buttoned up. This work is very much about learning to be comfortable being uncomfortable. It's really about welcoming yourself into the family of humanity. And what I've seen from just so many people is that we're all the same. We're all the same. We have different details and different circumstances. But if you name things as they are, and you're willing to say lonely to me, I don't care what your situation is or how it's different from mine. I'm right with you. Or if you've been hurt or if you're so excited about something, but you're afraid to share it because you're afraid people will hurt you because you're happy. Everyone knows these things. And so naming things as they are is a way to weave us into the larger family of humanity. And that's what people really want. I heard a really beautiful quote. We had a reading with Rosemary Wotola Trauma here in the house with Alison Luderman too. Oh, and, um, <laughs> two of my favorite people. I know, it was so beautiful. And Kim Rosen, who is a wonderful writer, she quoted Leonard Cohen, we just want the natural man. We just want the natural woman. And so that voice, the home voice, the voice that you and I use together when we're walking, or when we're talking and we're not monitoring what we're saying or editing it for one another, we're just using our home voice and we're not overthinking it. That's the natural man, the natural woman. That's the voice that we want to get back to. And so that's why in wild writing, you know, as a when when we're about to start writing, I always say, please write as poorly as possible. Please let your bellies hang. 
And then, you know, I started saying this other thing too, like, what if we already loved you? What if we already loved you? And we knew like, Tanya, what if you knew that I already loved you? And anything that you were going to write here was just completely welcomed by me. I already love you. You don't have to entertain me. You don't have to wow me or anything. I already love you. Could you relax? And could you just come out onto the page in your home voice and know that you are being received? How good that feels inside of us as the writer and how humanizing it is to our community. Mm. That's what we're really doing here. And maybe that's part of the pandemic too, is that there's so much revved up and so much anxiety of the unknown. And so to re- be able to relax with other people and to drop a lot of things, to be able to name the terror, to be able to name all the things that were unknown and frightening, that was really important. And not mm. just keep a good face. Yeah, absolutely. I think people needed that very much during yeah. that time. Yeah. And I think we still, you know, I have to say, I think we still need a lot because world is more complicated than ever. And we're holding so much. And back to this naming thing, it's like to just be able to see things as they are and just this is what's happening. This is the climate. This is Ukraine. This is my daughter. This is me climbing in bed at night. All of those things swim in the same sea. And to be able to hold them and just watch them and name them, even if we don't understand them, is like saying like, yeah, I know, this is where we live. Just to name it without even editorializing or making a point about it. Just, it's right there. I see it. Okay. Staying with what's simple and true in a world of so many, quote unquote, alternative facts flying around, right? Yeah. And one more really important thing in that way is that I know what it is to live as a consumer. And in the consumeristic world we live in, like, oh my God, when I get those pants or when I lose five pounds or I'm going to be really happy when I get on that trip to Spain or whatever, wild writing helps us to cast our gaze low so that we aren't looking outside and trying to import other things that are going to make us happier or better or whatever. Cast our gaze low and start to account for what is at our feet right now. We write about the smallest things. You know, there's a sort of a feeling in the world of writing, like, who cares? Is it important? Is it valuable? Is it shiny? No. Let's write about the things that fall under the radar that are so simply beautiful that we miss in our quest for greatness. We miss all these tiny little beautiful things already at our feet. And so when we cast our gaze low and we start accounting for the tiniest moments, it's kind of like wanting what we already have, acknowledging what we already have and letting go of that big lunge for more. Yeah. That's so important to me. I feel like that's a really healing part of it. I know that you have been working on a memoir. Would you like to tell us a little bit and read an excerpt from that? I'd love to. Thank you so much. I thought that was really exciting. You know, mostly writers are working on things that nobody's waiting for. You know, you do this in your own way, in your own time. So I appreciate getting to share it. Thank you for your interest. So I'm doing it, at least right now, in the lyric style, meaning that I use numbers to tell the story. I think the best is just just to read a little bit of it. Number one, 
I'm 35 years old and I'll be giving birth to my first daughter in a few short months. I'm also working on a film about people who cheat on their partners and have just placed an ad in a newspaper asking men and women to get in touch and tell me their stories. Within the first week, I get over 100 calls, mostly from men, but some women too. Most of the calls are confessional, men who tell me how much they love their wives, but how dead their sex lives are. Some people just want to whisper stories of clandestine sex with neighbors, co-workers. One man tells me about the neighborhood potluck where he and a married woman a few doors down have escaped the back room of the house where the woman hops onto the washing machine, pulls her panties aside, and he stands in front of her hard already and fucking her furiously as their families play badminton and grill hot dogs in the backyard. He gets breathy as he speaks, like he's reenacting the event, like he wants me to get off on it too. Two, one day that week I'm wrapped in a towel and about to get into the shower when I hear the phone ring, then I hear the machine pick it up. When I get out of the shower 10 minutes later, whoever's leaving the message is still talking. Standing in the stairwell, wet, in a towel, I recognize the sound of my father, but he sounds dreamy, emotional. He sounds lost. Three, it's so beautiful in Los Angeles today, he whispers. It's raining and I'm looking out the bedroom window. The flowers are blooming in the garden. I've never seen it so lovely here. I can hear music in the background, Bach maybe. I put up everyone's pictures around me, he says. I love you all so much. I want to tell you more. Maybe one day I can, but for now, just know that I love you. Dad, I called back immediately. What's going on? Four, my father was in love, was what was going on, but not with my mom who'd left him a week earlier to go fishing a couple hundred miles up the coast. A week before she'd gotten a call from my baby sister who worked for my dad in his real estate office in LA and who told her that a woman had been repeatedly calling the office but wouldn't leave her name and number and it was freaking my sister out. When my mom confronted my dad, he got defensive. She was a masseuse, he said. It's just a massage. Then why so defensive, my mom asked. My dad was a terrible liar, and the story came tumbling out. Turned out it was more than a massage. My mom, shocked, decides to go fishing up the coast in Ojai to get her head straight. Five. While she's away, my dad meets an 18-year-old Indian woman he found through an ad in a newspaper. What the hell is going on, I asked him again. Oh, he starts to say, maybe one day I'll tell you. Tell me now, Dad. Even if I hadn't been receiving calls from cheaters all week, I knew how to listen, especially to my father. Wow, beautiful. Thank you for reading that. Thank you. It's in process. It's in process. I love the form. What drew you to that, to the numbered form? I like to write in short bits, and I think I was really daunted by the long form by the memoir, by the long form, really, really daunting to me to tell a big story in a sort of seamless way. Something about these numbers is nice because you can go back and forth in time and you can, I'm 35 years old and I'm about to give birth, you know, at my sister's bat mitzvah, you know, many, many years earlier, like you can do a lot. And some of the small bits next to one another create a tension and you can have a number eight and it can be one line long. Number nine can be three paragraphs long. And so it offers you an opportunity to not follow a chronology, but stay instinctive and intuitive. And I just like small bits. Whether the numbers stay in toward the end, we'll see. 
Yeah. It's more like the logic of poetry where you associate and you can make these big leaps. Right. Exactly. There's freedom. It's like rock jumping. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. And if it works, then like you can make a lot of things work in ways I couldn't even tell you why it works, but it works. Maybe it's just the sound of it. Maybe it's two words side by side, you know? Yeah. Well, I do want to ask you about your trips that you're leading, because I know that's another really exciting part of what you're doing right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I lead trips to uh, San Miguel de Allende and Oaxaca with my friend Andrea. These are writing trips and creativity trips. We're taking pictures, we're making art, we're eating. We also go to Taos. Right now, the trips that are coming up are there's a wonderful trip with Jeff Greenwald, who's a travel writer who you know, to Nepal. And that's in late November. That trip to Nepal is really special. It's meditation in the morning, it's writing, and then it's moving out into Kathmandu for 10 days, learning, traveling, meeting people. It's really an extraordinary trip. And then we've got another trip to San Miguel de Allende, as you know. Yes, I've been on that trip and it's amazing and such a beautiful, colorful, inspiring, and just delightful place to write. Yeah. Yeah. It's really beautiful. That's in January and that's for women only. The Natal trip is for women and men. That's a great trip. Love to have people join us. It's wonderful to take to the world on our feet. And you know this too, because you're such a traveler, take to the world on our feet and to sort of open to the stories. Yeah, I feel that when you're traveling, when you're in a place you've never been or haven't been in many years, your senses just open up in such a new way and you see everything fresh. You're a baby again, which is just amazing. Yeah, I loved going to um, Mexico a few years ago by myself for two months. It was just like the world just came alive. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for your interest in this work. Thank you for carrying the work out into the world, Tanya. I really appreciate that. You're exactly who I hoped would do that. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for talking to us. And as I said, you know, I quote you all the time to my students. So I wanted them to get to meet you. Wonderful. <laughs> so good. Thank you so much. They're thank lucky you. to have you. You're you're the real deal, babe. You're the real oh, deal. Thanks. And thank you for listening to Off Leash Arts Conversations on Creativity. I'm your host, Tanya Schaefer. Editing assistance for this podcast was provided by Asher Witkin, who also composed our theme music. You can find more interviews with artists from a wide range of disciplines on our website at offleasharts.com. Until next time, take good care and stay off leash.